Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we can all make a difference right now. Today, we are back after taking a week off, so there are a lot of threads to unwind. See what I did there? Uh, We catch up about the horrific SCOTUS decisions and bloated military spending. Good times. Ben, joining us for our interview is Ben Sheehan, civics education expert and author of OMG, WTF, Does the Constitution Actually Say? I'm Steve Pearson. I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And I'm Jessica Craven. And And this this is How How We Win. Win. We're back after um, a nice uh, 4th of July break for everyone. I hope you all had a good uh, week off. Um, before we get into the news, I just want to acknowledge, and this is news stuff, but, you know, um, there's just been terrible flooding, uh, especially on the East Coast, uh, record yeah. heat all over the U.S. and all over the world, um, really dangerous conditions. Obviously, uh, you know, every year it gets worse and worse. We see the repercussions of, of climate change, but I just want to reach out to our listeners and let them know that we're thinking about them um, and, and hope everyone's okay. Uh, everyone who's affected is, is okay. The floods in, in Vermont, I know, are finally starting to recede, and so hopefully they'll get some relief there. And they were in the Hudson Valley in New York, too, where my family lives. Oh. Crazy. Yeah, terrible. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's tough. Tough times. So, but we have, yeah, we have some tough stuff to talk about as we do every week, and we do it with uh, joy of community in our hearts, <laughs> or we try to at least. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the news. Jessica, um, what's top of mind for you today? Uh, well, I, you know, aside from all the other things happening, and there is a lot, obviously, I uh, did a TikTok today about the uh, Pentagon funding that we are about to see the House vote on, the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which they vote on, I believe, every year. And this year, um, they are asking for $886 billion for the coming year. So that is a $28 billion increase over the year before. And uh, I just I had read something today that said the Pentagon is about to get more money than the Departments of Education, Health and Human Services, Justice, State and Transportation combined. And this $28 billion increase is twice the budget, the yearly budget of the Environmental Protection Agency. So we look at a week like this week with all of our, you know, the environmental catastrophes just coming thick and fast. Mm -hmm. And think about the fact that we are funding the EPA at $12 billion a year. And we are funding our military at $886 billion for the coming year. And uh, this is, I don't mean to be depressing about this. There's something that we can do. But uh, I just, before I get to that, I will just also say that it's not only that this budget is so bloated and that Republicans have refused to let us increase any other line item for the next two years. Everything else is frozen. They extracted that promise from Biden in the debt ceiling negotiations. Um, But that... The Pentagon is a terrible, terrible steward of this money. 60 Minutes just did a study saying that there's horrible price gouging uh, in the defense contractors. And in uh, the most recent audit, which it failed, the Pentagon could account for only 39% of its $3.5 trillion in asset, assets, excuse me, and it has failed its last five 
audits. And so I really am going to start pushing, uh, you know, uh, my followers and my subscribers to start making noise about this. It's going to be a very difficult thing to change. We spend more on our military than the next nine countries combined spend on theirs, including China and Russia. And in fact, we spend roughly 10 times what Russia does. Um, and a lot of that money is just getting wasted. So when we wow. spend that money there, yeah, we are. The, that is a choice we are making to not provide health care or invest in early childhood education or forgive student loans, address the climate crisis. All of these things that the Republicans say we can't afford to do. And I just want to really encourage people to start making noise about this. When you get a chance to talk to your lawmaker or go to a town hall or call them, tell them to stop this. It's insane. And every year it's just more and more. And meanwhile, Americans at home are just suffering. And it's it's upsetting. Um, I believe we can change it, but it really is going to take a collective outcry that we need to start making. So that's what I was thinking about this week. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's it's a huge issue and we don't talk about it enough and so therefore it just becomes sort of normal. Right. So I appreciate you bringing it up. I also saw that they um rescinded the vaccine requirement for military troops as part of this bipartisan deal. That's I think yeah. great. Yep. Yep. <laughs> or that that's what their proposal is and mm -hmm. I guess Biden has to decide whether he's going to sign it or not. There's a bunch of amendments. There's about 800 amendments that they're trying to get through that have to do, you know, get getting rid of the military's ability to, you know, use EVs. Just every. Wow. Yeah. Just, uh, you know. They're the worst. They're the worst. They don't care about stuff that actually works. They just care about stuff that inflames their voters. It's very yeah. sad. Yeah. And the know, sad, they're and just looking for these wedges. So, yeah. And, wedge, the, wedge, and wedge. the sad thing, too, is actually, though, first of all, writ large, like this is the ongoing saga and the no-brainer like when we're struggling to pay for social programs you know one like we were talking about before jessica one less aircraft carrier could take yeah. care of our snap programs for yep. years and years you know it's like that's a no-brainer but also you know there are uh innovations that happen in the military especially when we look at uh you know climate and um, electric vehicles and stuff. You're you're seeing the development of uh, an electric fleet of vehicles and longer range batteries and mobile charging and, and all of that because the military uh, does recognize uh, the threat to national security that climate change poses. Um, yeah. So mm -hmm. the military is actually doing some really uh, important work here, but it's the Republicans who are using these culture war issues to um, to push back on what the military actually wants when it comes oh, to yeah. investing mm -hmm. in you know green infrastructure and electric vehicles and and all of that. Um, yeah, there's some. Uh, electric kind of uh, off-road sort of Hummer vehicles right now, which are tactically really great. They're silent, you know. Because they're quieter. Yeah, yeah. they're quieter. And they're harder to detect. Yeah, they don't have a heat signature, so yep. they're not as vulnerable to um, to that kind of uh, detection, um, you know. And, uh, and like I said, uh, climate change is a severe national security uh, problem. And um, the biggest, yeah. the biggest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They just don't care. They never have. They don't. Uh, so vote them out. Okay. All right. That's it for me. We'll do that. We'll vote them out. Problem solved. So the other thing that, you know, we were on break yesterday and, and so we were all reeling from these her uh, not yesterday. We were on break last week and we mm -hmm. were all reeling from the SCOTUS decisions. Last time we talked, we were talking about 
the surprisingly good SCOTUS decision that gave us hope about, you know, our, our elections and, and democracy. But um, we hinted at, you know, the worst is always the last couple of days <laughs> before they, they uh, you know, sulk away. And, and that was certainly yeah. the case. Um, Jennifer, do you want to talk about your feelings about sure. these decisions and talk about the decisions? So many feelings. Yeah. I mean, it really felt like an undoing. It's like an undoing of yeah. progress that's really hard to watch. Um, for those, I'm sure most people have followed it, but essentially the conservative majority struck down the entire affirmative action process for admissions, ruled that it was legal for businesses to discriminate against protected classes, at, especially LGBTQ, and um, condemned us all to a debt-filled existence where we're just going to be paying more and more for things that actually should be available to everyone, like at higher education. So they really said, have a great summer um, <laughs> at the end there. And it's just, it's its not funny. It's terrible. And I, I, I definitely was with activists um the day that all those decisions came down and people are very despondent you know it's it's really it's really hard and horrible to feel like there's just this force out there with the supreme court now how it's been constructed that that can just literally undo what we've been able to put forward with our choices at the ballot box so it's a huge problem. I know it's, I mean, I'm feeling like I I really want to see us have a strategy around this that it, we're not just like, well, I don't know. I don't know what we can do. Oh, that's too divisive. Like we actually really need to figure out what we're going to do about this rogue Supreme Court going forward because it feels very untenable to have all of this effort and mobilization around elections and, and elect people and pass policy and then just have that policy be undone. So yeah. it's depressing and, and, and sad, but I did have one piece of good news oh. that um, uh, there was a poll that showed that at least 50% of all voters, likely voters think the Supreme court has made life worse for Americans in recent years rather than Better. Only 25% think it has made life better. So in some ways, you know, public opinion is shifting and coming back onto our side and around the Supreme Court and the ethics violations also can continue to be fodder for, for reform and change. I did see that. I saw that polling and uh, and the court is unpopular right now. So it is an opportunity, as you said, Jennifer, you know, um, and with your great guidance on messaging that's effective for us to really make our voices heard. And, um, you know, it was so hateful on the last day of Pride Month, this decision came down. Uh, you know, making it legal to discriminate against LGBTQ plus folks uh, in your business. And it was founded on this bogus, non-existent case. It was, uh, you know, not even uh, this woman had aspired to have a website business for, you know, ma for marriages and said that there was a, a gay couple um, that wanted to use, potentially wanted to use the service. None of that, it was actually, there wasn't actually a job there. Um, the case never should have been accepted by the Supreme Court. As soon as they agreed to hear the case, you knew the writing was on the wall about this, you know, because, uh, you know, it, it just based on on where it came from, it, it never should have reached the highest court in the land. And it's just so 
so hateful and and the one two punch of that and um you know uh, how under attack that community has been and then you know the affirmative action plus student debt so tied together those two things because those really affect you know black and brown people the most and and people who uh, you know don't have traditionally been left out of higher education uh, the most and um, man it's uh it's painful. We ha- we have a lot of work to do, and and um, you know, like like you said, I don't know the answer, but uh, public sentiment seems to be with us. And whenever I see that, that means we've got to we've got to keep getting loud. We've got to get out there and and uh, and make sure that our voices are heard. Well, and also uh, for those of you listening to this, Ben Sheehan has got a couple of ideas as well when we he do does. the interview with him. Um, Great tease. There, there are great organizations. I mean, I would just say uh, Demand Justice is is the best organization working on court expansion. And then the Brennan Center has just launched a huge initiative uh, for term limits, which uh, you'll hear Ben talk about how those really seem to have a lot of uh, bipartisan support. So it, it is a very hard time and a, and a tough time. But um, there are ways that we can get through this. And uh, I think we just have to we have to stick it out and be determined. Yeah. Well, speaking of ways to be determined, to stick it out and, and stuff to do, um, let's talk about our Chopwood carry water. What do, what do you have for us today, Jessica? What should we be doing this week? Well, on that note, actually, I've got two things, and they, they're both uh, relevant to what we've just been talking about. I've, I've got a resist bot letter. So, you, you know, this is just an easy way of sending a letter to your representatives. It's about military spending and asking your representatives to uh, to to curb some of that spending and spend it on, you know, um, important American social programs. And uh, you can just literally text sign B, uh, P as in Peter, J, B as in boy, M as in Mary. B as in boy, W, to 50409. And we'll put that um, in the the show notes. Thank you very much. And also uh, this week, I did do a TikTok about how we fix the Supreme Court. And I uh, put together a resource document uh, with scripts to call um, Senators Wyden, Durbin, and Schumer. And, and that is actually a recommendation of Sheldon Whitehouse. He suggested that we keep pressure on them as chairs of various Senate committees um, to investigate the justices and keep those investigations robust. And then there um, there's information about how to fight for term limits, how to sign up with Demand Justice. We can put that in the show notes and, you know, share it. The, the, there are ways that we can advocate. And honestly, if we all start advocating for this, we can and will make change. All right. Well, uh, you teased Ben Sheehan's interview very well. That's exciting coming up. And, and I'm excited for everyone to hear that. Uh, before we do that, though, let's talk about what's giving us hope. Jennifer, something giving you hope this week? Yeah, well, I think it may have happened last week, but um, yeah, toward the end of last week, I don't know if you saw, but there was the news about the U.S. approval of the Alzheimer's drug, Mm -hmm. clearing the way for Medicare and other insurance companies to begin covering the treatment. And I thought that that gives me hope because um, I have people in kind of my extended family and friends network who suffered from Alzheimer's and, you know, it is more common, more and more common, um, of course, these days. And as our, everyone is aging and uh, parents getting older, it just was in, felt inspiring, like just to see that progress that 
um, this this drug, which is clearly helping people who who struggle with the disease, you know, feel better, get better, um, helping with the symptoms that, um, you know, just again, like always feels hopeful when the government um, does does the right thing. <laughs> and like, it feels like a good, hopeful development. Yeah. What about you, Jessica? Well, I'm going to talk about something different than I planned on, as as I often do. But, you know, <laughs> I am reading, and this is going to sound like a really weird reason for hope, but I'm reading the 1619 uh, Project book right mm. now, which I've had had on my shelf for a while and meant to read. And I had read some of the articles, but I am reading the book from start to finish. And obviously, it's I'm reading it at the perfect time with everything that is breaking in the news. It feels very relevant. And it's a, it's a painful book and a really difficult book, but is so helpful and enlightening in terms of understanding everything that we're going through right now and contextualizing it. So I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It it sheds, it's like turning on bright lights in a room that you've been sort of stumbling around in the dark. Mm. Uh, it just really helps to explain what's happening. But it also, and here, th this is where I got the hope, was I was reading about the Dred Scott decision um, in the 19th century where this uh, the a slave who lived in free territory asked um, basically to be able to sue someone, and I'm not going to sum this up very well, but the long and short of it was that the judge ruled that um, it, the judge's name was Tansy, who was the, the the chief justice, I believe. He ruled that the, the slave or the free slave couldn't sue because black people were not citizens and would never be. And I'm reading about this and how just imagining the devastation that that must have imagined what that must have felt like, you know, after everything they've already been through, and now they're being told, you're never going to be citizens. You're never going to have a full voice in this country. And yet, uh, it, you read just a few more pages and, you know, uh, black people and their allies just continued to organize and they continued to meet in these conventions and talk about how to get citizenship. And they worked uh, the minority justices of uh, their opinions got brought up over and over again. The ones who had disagreed, their opinions were used in lower courts. And lo and behold, 10 years later, it did take 10 years, but 10 years later, black people had full citizenship in the United States. And it was it's such a good reminder that, you know, we can get devastating decisions like the ones we've gotten this week. And it doesn't mean game over. It just means we have more work to do. But man, if they could persevere, we can. Um, and we have to. And it's just uh, it's a great reminder when we read history of just how much horrible shit, excuse my language, other people have been through in mm -hmm. the history of this country and they have prevailed, they have persevered and they have ultimately prevailed. And and we will too. Um, I, I just love history. It's a very helpful thing for, for um, being an activist. It, it helps yeah. to stay engaged. Yeah. So that's that. Yeah. That's awesome. I love it. I definitely want to read that and I'm kind of embarrassed that I haven't read it yet. You know, um, it's top of my list and Thank you for that. And my makes my reason for hope pretty lame, but I'm just going to say it anyway. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. I'm kind of hopeful about threads, y'all. I, <laughs> I hope that we can Woo! kill Elon Musk's Ooh. Twitter and just all move on to threads because, uh, mm. you know, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, not great. We kind of were talking about this before. Not not the best, but um, Elon Musk, really terrible. And he's already ruined Twitter, and um, yes. uh, and I just am bad at social media. So I just need us all to get behind one platform. There's just too many damn platforms. And you know, Jessica's on there, right? <laughs> right. So yeah. so we're actually all on there. You, the three we're of us could there. could 
could have uh, some threads. We could be in some threads. Is that what you say now? I, say, I don't even know how to talk about it, but we can we can thread together. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. It it is somewhat hopeful. It just <laughs> since Elon bought Twitter and it's been everybody wanting to leave. You know, so many of us just desperate to leave. And then just looking I, for I the, know about you, the right I tried. Ride. <laughs> yeah. I tried like at least four different platforms that popped up and yeah. just nothing really worked. Yeah. I couldn't get my friend graph in there, et cetera, et cetera. So the fact that, I mean, it, it does give me hope that people like um, Brian Tyler Cohen, our friend, is like excited about it and using it and getting off of Twitter. So that is, I I, I hear you. I second that, Steve. Right. It's like, it's not, we don't know because we're also like in this dystopia where one guy owns like all of our data, which is kind of terrifying. Right. Um <laughs> Yeah, but you know, baby steps. It's going to be a while yeah. before we know, uh, obviously, the implications and uh, if if everyone will leave Twitter. But it gives me a little hope and a little little Schadenfreude also. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what's also really hopeful. I'll just say this real quick: is that the person who runs the account on Twitter that is tracking Elon Musk's jet. Uh, you know how that person got yeah. blocked from from Twitter? He is now, or she, I don't know who it is. They are now on threads. Oh. So, nice. so we can go back to tracking Elon Musk's private jet. Joy. <laughs> see, joy. see, there's a lot of value in that. <laughs> <laughs> small things, small victories. <laughs> Take right. them where we can get them. Well, great chatting with you all. I, I'm excited for everyone to hear from our, our old friend, Ben. He was on the podcast back in 2020, right before the pandemic, and it's great mm. to catch up with him. So our interview with Ben Sheehan is coming up right away. Ben Sheehan is a former award-winning executive producer at Funny or Die and the author of OMG WTF Does the Constitution Actually Say and OMG WTF is Gerrymandering. And The Hollywood Reporter listed him as one of entertainment's 35 rising executives under 35. Welcome back to the show. It's been a minute. You were last here. The show aired on April 21st, 2020. So this was kind of right before we all went into our pandemic caves. You were one of our last uh, live interviews, and and lots happened <laughs> since then. I was just going to say, I think you're the last person I saw before lockdown. Is well, that right? It might be. I, I could go back and look at my Google calendar, but I'm about, I'd say, 80% correct that that was my last in-person interaction before everything went uh a little bit haywire. Yeah, I think it was you and then Dan Pfeiffer came in for an interview and then I was we were handing mic packages off to folks after that and and leaving the studio. Um but it's great to have you back and there's so much to catch up on uh you know, but I I always like to get a little origin story and since it's been a minute, can you talk about like I, I know we're both DC kids, but how did you get involved in this work and and what are you doing now? So I grew up in D.C., as you mentioned, and I had a uh, government education uh, uh, foisted on me from birth, uh, and I was basically forced to endure conversations at the dinner table between my parents about what happened that day in D.C. in the halls of Congress. My mom was a staffer in the, in the United States Senate, and this is just like something that was always around me from as long, for as long as I can remember. Um, and then I did a detour, and uh, I studied this in school for um, most 
most of my um, educational career, but then I did a detour and went and worked in the entertainment industry um, and then kind of found my way into the nexus of entertainment and politics working at Funny or Die, um, often mocking the things that were happening in the halls of Congress and well, kind of found should. humor and humor adjacent things as a way to help demystify what was happening because I found that it was actually a really good tool to be like um, sort of a, a runway onto being more civically engaged, not just mocking it for, you know, relieving stress or frustration. Um, and that's kind of the work I've continued today through um, producing content, writing books, um, developing TV projects, uh, sort of based around the idea that a lot of us are embarrassed about how little we know, but actually this stuff isn't taught as much in schools today as it used to be. We shouldn't be embarrassed about that. We should all kind of catch up together. Um, and especially speaking for myself and the younger generations of which I, I barely am a member, um, but millennials and Gen Z are now going to be the largest voting bloc for the first time in American history in 2024. And we're the people who were deprived of civics education in schools, at least compared to previous generations. So my whole mission is how can I take the stuffiness, the boringness, the inaccessibility out of government and civics education and make it palatable and dare I say interesting. I don't know if I succeeded at that, but that is the goal. That is so fantastic. It makes me think a little bit, and I'm sorry, I'm dating myself, uh, but the um, Schoolhouse Rock videos that they used to show uh, constantly on TV when I was a kid. And so you you ended up sort of internalizing things um, about I'm just a bill and I'm sitting here on Capitol yeah. Hill. Yeah. And you and I did learn just a little bit from those. And they were um, through osmosis almost that you just absorbed them without really intending to. And it would be so great to have stuff like that again. Um, I still love me... making those little wagon wheel and cheese sandwiches too. Those the crackers with the cheese. That was another schoolhouse rock. It's a wagon <laughs> wheel. Anyway. <laughs> I, I don't know. I might have missed that one, but I know that a noun is a person, place or thing. <laughs> Um, so, so Ben, uh, you're work championing the need for civics education. Obviously, it's inspiring. It's completely essential. I know this is someone who's on TikTok. There is just an incredible lack of understanding of how basic things work. And, and understandably, because you're right, it's not taught. And uh, you have said that one of the biggest threats to our democracy is ignorance. And we are definitely seeing right-wing media peddling lies and conspiracies. So um, I mentioned Schoolhouse Rock jokingly, but do you think that early education can provide some sort of inoculation to things like that? I absolutely do. And I think it kind of falls into two buckets, right? There's one that's just sort of understanding the basics of how government works, how you can insert yourself as both a participant and sort of an overseer, you know, because we are um, at the top of the political food chain. We can have conversations about the ways that that's sort of thwarted with gerrymandering and money being an influence in politics. But like at the end of the day, our tax dollars and our votes, you know, hire people, they pay their salaries, benefits and expenses. It's up to us every two, four or six years if we want to continue continue to offer that job and those salaries, benefits and expenses. So we are kind of like one giant collective boss, um, but we're very illiterate when it comes to knowing what we actually have to oversee. We often pay attention to the, you know, a little bit during the hiring process of campaigns, but then we kind of take our eye off the ball once the person actually gets the job. Uh, we're not particularly good collective managers. Um, we pay attention to sort of the, um, the outrage and not the actual things that matter the halls of Congress. And um, I think just understanding how government works is one really important 
part. And then the other getting to what you kind of just mentioned uh, with your experience on TikTok is just like the media literacy component, right? And understanding like how to vet sources of information, how to make sure you're getting your information um, from a legitimate place and not falling to propaganda. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I, I do think there's a lot of benefit to platforms like, like TikTok. Um, but I do see the more that, you know, traditional news organizations go behind a paywall and cost money. Um, and people, especially younger people, may not be able to afford those, you know, subscriptions pile up. And so they look for free um, sources of information. And often that's an opening for propaganda. Yeah. Right. And I think young people are largely getting their news from TikTok now, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Huge amounts of people get their uh, young people get their uh, information from different accounts on on social media. I was told, and I, I uh, maybe Jessica, you you can verify this for me that TikTok is now the number one search engine in the world that it surpasses Google in terms of a search engine. Is that right? I think that is true. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's crazy. Yeah, um, but you know, I I was really struck, uh, Ben. You said that quote that the biggest threat to democracy is ignorance, and I think that's really true. But it made me think about how deeper down the wormhole than just ignorance we are. Like you know. Uh, I think that was true a few years ago. Now uh, there's just so much, so many lies and misinformation and, and all of that. Certainly how we vet the news. Um, but I, I just wonder, like, uh, what are some out-of-the-box ways that we can teach our kids uh, about civics? I mean, you have a, a book, you have the Constitution book for kids. Uh, how, how do we get kids like started early so that they're hopefully not so influenced by, uh, you know, what's what's being spread around the, the lies that are being spread around? Yeah, I think it goes down, you know, sort of drilling this information in from an early age, if it, if it were up to me, and I'm not a state legislator. Uh, there may be someone on this uh, on this Zoom podcast who could be one day. Um, but I, I would really push states, you know, that have the power to do this, which is any state, um, to pass a law requiring three years of civics education, uh, maybe a year at fourth grade, a year at eighth grade, a year at 12th grade, and kind of getting more detailed uh, with each of those years, uh, requiring some form of test, you know, in order to like a graduation requirement, um, whether it's the citizenship test, you know, there are studies that show that uh, only a third of, um, you know, American citizens born in the United States can actually pass the citizenship test that anyone who wants to become American citizen has to pass in order to become one. Mm -hmm. So I think yep. starting with three years of school, sort of at different stages, Ages throughout this, you know, sort of scholastic careers, uh, along with a civics required test, like other tests that we have to take to graduate high school. I think that would be a start. Um, but I also hope that we can find a way to make learning about this stuff cool and interesting and part of our everyday and using pop culture as an entry point uh, to make this as normal as, you know, the movies that you watch and the music you listen to, the clothes you wear, uh, the ways you get involved. Love that. That is so good. Um, I, I'm just very inspired by that. The idea, oh, that would just be so wonderful. What hey, a wonderful thing it would be. Look, and I, if you registered every senior to vote too. Oh my God. I, I think we I'm should sorry. do it. We can certainly do that in California. I, I, I can imagine that that would be something we can organize around. Um, uh, so yeah, you heard it here. That's add that to my list of campaign promises. Love it. <laughs> 
Um, well, so can we talk about, I selfishly want to talk about the Supreme Court for a second because I can't get enough of talking about Ugh. this miserable situation that we're in. Um, so, Ben, uh, what do you think? I mean, you, you are the uh, civics expert, right? What do we do? What What are our options if we get the majority back in 2024? Can we expand the court? What do you think about ethics, you know, codifying ethics, transparency, term limits? What the hell do we do about this rogue court? Well, what's really interesting is that um, a couple of years ago, the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, they convened a group of experts who identify as libertarian, uh, as conservative and as liberal. And they agree, they agreed on a couple of things. One of one thing that they all agreed on was term limits for Supreme Court justices mm -hmm. across the board, regardless of whether this scholar was a conservative, liberal or libertarian. They all said they came to an agreement that it would make sense to have a constitutional amendment uh, establishing 18 year term limits for yes. Supreme Court justices. So that's something that if we're going by that has wide, you know, bipartisan support. Um, I would say in order to expand the court, obviously, that requires passing a law, and that's either 60 senators required um, or a majority of senators to agree to put aside the filibuster for that very specific thing. Um, as of the current makeup of the court now, obviously, we, there aren't 60 votes to do that, um, and there aren't uh, 50 votes, 51 votes to uh, put aside the filibuster for this specific thing. So adding a couple Senate seats um, for people, Democrats who want to expand the court. Uh, it is possible if the Democrats were to win back the House, which they lost on a very narrow margin, um, if Biden gets reelected, then it is possible. Um, but I think there are definitely some things that have a higher chance of happening sooner than that. Uh, there are multiple uh, ethics reform bills that are being put forth by various senators, um, several of which have bipartisan support. Um, I think that's something that could happen sooner than that. But there's clearly, however you look at it, an appetite on every every side of the aisle, every vantage point that there is something that needs to be done. Uh, because right now, the fact that nine people get to serve for life uh, and that six people can take rights away and take money, uh, opportunities to get your student loans reimbursed uh, and yeah. affirmative action and, uh, uh, you know, a, a right to body autonomy uh, for the entire country uh, for what could be multiple generations is just not a democratic system. It's not. And that's encouraging to hear that there's some bipartisan agreement there. It sure doesn't feel like that to me because it feels like the Republicans are are getting everything that they fought so hard for uh, out of this court and uh, and trying to hold on to power and, and keep the court the way that it is. Um, so that's I was surprised to hear that, too, because I, I didn't think that there was a single Republican who supported ethics reform. Do you think there is? Uh, I can't speak to members uh, of in, in, well, it depends on what ethics reforms we're talking about. But this is the, these were not members of Congress that were part of this study. These were uh, professors of constitutional law at various universities across the country. Right. Um, I, I my gut tells me that there is there is some support for this, but whether or not people would come out and vote for that bill uh, is another thing. Because what I've learned, if one of the things that has made me sad about the political process, um, which I've always known, um, but got to see really kind of up close um, the last uh, decade or so sort of in my work through entertainment and politics is that a lot of people believe one thing in private and vote a different thing in public. Um, and that is the reason that we don't have really significant gun reforms. There's a reason uh, that we don't have a lot of things happening because people are more interested in preserving their um, political survival uh, than they are actually voting on their conscience. Yeah. Mm.
Um, well, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, the possibility of getting a couple of uh, sinners to make, you know, mansion less cinema, mansion less cinema. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> make mansion yes. less cinema. I mean, I meant less relevant, but, uh, you know, get cinema out of there um, and, uh, and make mansion less relevant. And then we really have uh, the opportunity to um, at least do some carve-outs. One of those uh, that we probably talked about when we were here last, and, and I haven't heard many people talking about now, I would like to re-up this conversation because we're both from the D.C. area, is D.C. statehood. What are your thoughts on that? Like that, that seems, first of all, it's just the right thing to do. You know, um, D.C. needs representation, but it would also, you know, add two Democratic senators to the makeup of the Senate? So I believe it was in 2016, uh, over 80% of DC residents uh, said that they wanted to be a state. They did a rep, they held a referendum. Yeah. And over 80% said, we clearly want to be a state. Uh, DC pays um, higher federal taxes than over 20 other states. Uh, they pay the highest federal tax per capita, um, and they don't have any members of Congress. Thankfully, the, the 23rd Amendment allows them to vote for, for president with electoral votes, but uh, they have no say uh, in, in floor legislation. They have a representative, uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who can uh, sit on committee and, and vote on committee, but can't actually vote on any uh, floor legislation. And you're paying billions upon billions of, tax, of dollars in taxes uh, every year, um, and you have little to no say and how that money gets spent. Um, I think it's fundamentally un-American. There have been uh, a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of opposition in the past, D.C. statehood. It goes back uh, over, well over a century. Uh, there's a lot of um, racial reasons that people have uh, resisted uh, giving uh, uh, full voting rights to D.C., um, given the fact that it would, if it were a state, it would immediately become uh, the highest proportion of the population African-American of any state in the country. Um, but it just goes down, you know, fundamentally, if you are paying for the federal government, you're paying more than 21 states are, you should have a say in how that money is spent. I don't think, uh, you know, the only reason this isn't happening is for political reasons and not right. moral ones. Yeah. Taxation without representation in, in, I mean, textbook definition. And they've got more citizens than, I believe, Wyoming, Vermont, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're, yep. they're, it makes no sense. Both Dakotas combined, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Bonkers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really hope it, it, it happens. As, as someone born in, in, in D.C. and who's, who's lived there for uh, a long time on and off, I really do hope it happens because it's just something that's fundamentally unfair in this country. Well, um, OK, so there's, there's some hope. There's some unfairness. Uh, there's the, the lack of a basic understanding of civics that we are fighting against. Um, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, you, you know the last question we like to ask everyone on this show, and that's what gives you the most hope for the future right now? I would say the fact that people under 40, and not to be ageist, but be, being uh, on the, uh, the, elder, the right. elder side of the millennial <laughs> generation, ba barely making it in, um, seeing my generation and uh, Gen Z, the, the generation younger than me, um, getting more and more involved politically despite the fact they didn't have access, as much access to this information in school um, as previous generations, but the fact that there's this incredible golden opportunity to be the largest, for the first time, for these voters, the largest voting bloc in 
the United States. Uh, right now, projections are anywhere that it would be 37% of the electorate would be uh, millennials and Gen Z combined. 37% would be um, baby boomers. Some projections have uh, millennials and Gen Z being significantly higher than baby boomers. But um, this is this is the time and the opportunity and the chance, the first time that as the largest plurality of the electorate, we have an opportunity to do something about this at the ballot box. We're not just a piece of the vote. We are the largest section. Um, and I really hope that people understand this. I'm going to talk about it ad nauseum for the next 18 months and beyond. Um, <laughs> but I really think that this is sort of the opportunity to step up and use those numbers to the advantage of getting some really important things done. And Ben, if we want to, because I want to hear more from you. So if we want to follow you or hear what you are saying and talking about, where, where do we do that? Uh, I'm mostly threads, on Instagram. Right? You're just, just on my threads. threads. On threads, Instagram. Threads. Um, I'm threading my Instagrams. I'm Instagramming my threads, going back and forth. <laughs> um, I, I am on. Uh, I am on TikTok. I don't. I don't post nearly as often as I, I should be. But it's either Ben Sheehan or that Ben Sheehan on all social media platforms. Great. Excellent. Well, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming back to our show, and uh, and thank you for your incredible work. I'm very, very grateful for it. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks so much for all that the both of you do. Thank you for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or find us on social. Threads. Including threads <laughs> at howwewinpod, though it's not on threads yet. At Blues Boy Steve, at Jen Ancona, and at Jess Craven 101. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. And please share our show with your friends and family who may or may not be on Threads. There is always work to do and threads to send, so we will be back with more next Wednesday. Wednesday.